Uh, my name is Jordan Rice. I'm one of the pastors here. So, yo, I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word church, but chances are that word to you means something radically different than what it would have meant to a person who was a follower of Jesus in the first century. The church from its inception was a movement. It was a movement built around a conviction. There was a group of people, similar to this room right now, that had seen something. It was an event that sparked a movement. This event was the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. These men and women claimed to have seen something. And what they had seen changed their life. It turned them from cowards to courageous. Some of the people who previously, just a couple of weeks before that, fled and ran away and distanced themselves from Jesus, now became people who were willing to even die for their faith because of what they had seen. And Christianity in the first century was a movement. To belong to the church meant that you were a part of the movement. In the Greek New Testament, uh, the word is commonly referred to and translated as ekklesia, Uh, And it means an assembly of people. It's a group of people who are gathered around an idea. And if you were to break this word, ecclesia, down, it uh, means um, called out. So these people who were called out and they were gathered around an idea. Big thing to take away, it it was something that you were a part of, not something that you went to. But over the years, a truly terrible thing happened. People began to think of church as a place that you went to for religious services. Our English word for church does not come from the Greek word ekklesia, but rather from the German word kirsch, which means a sacred place where you go and gather for religious purposes. It changed it from a dynamic movement of followers of Jesus to a group of people sitting around. You know, one of the best analogies I know for this is a story of a boathouse. And the story is told that there is this uh, terrain, this body of water that is really, really dangerous. And there's a group of fishermen who realize that there's a lot of people who seem to be drowning in this one particular part of the river or the ocean. So they band together and they pull some people out. And the people who get pulled out start to become the volunteers to make sure that nobody else crashes and perishes in that water. They had known what it felt like to be saved, and they wanted to give their life to saving others. But eventually, enough people gathered around to to take different shifts and make sure nobody was crashing and drowning in the water that they said, you know what, we got so many people, we need to build a little boathouse. And they built a boathouse so that people can come in and take naps when it wasn't their turn. Somebody came in a couple of weeks later and said, ah, this boathouse needs some upgrades. We need, some, we need some, a popcorn machine or something in here to make sure that people can get snacks. I mean, the Cheez-Its are good, but we need some better snacks in the boathouse if we're going to have enough carbs for our journey. And not just do we need some snacks, we need some water bottles, we need a TV over here, because if nothing is going on, you know, we need to watch ESPN. Over and over again, they started to just give more attention to the status of the boathouse than the focus of the mission. An argument started to ensue about the upgrades that would happen to the boathouse, and before you knew it, there was a group of people who were just in the boathouse, and they lost focus, they lost sight of the mission. I think that's what's happened so much in the American church. 
And the great danger of the American church is that we would change it from a mission, from something that is meant to be a movement, something that's meant to be dynamic, something that you are invited into, to something that you passively receive. Some questions for us today. Are we, as a church, are we just doing ministry and spinning our wheels, running an institution, or are we a part of a movement? Now, Renaissance is one extremely small slither in the activity and the movement of God in this country, in this world, in this city. There are countless amazing churches that God has been a part of for thousands of years, and Renaissance is playing a very small role in that. But are we just running an institution or are we a part of a movement? For you, is church a place that you attend or is it a movement that you are personally a part of? An even better question for all of us today, what is the source of the movement? Is it just coming together around a sense of community and that this is what we ought to do and that my grandmother will be really happy if she knows that I belong to a church? What fuels the movement? What is meant to fuel the movement that God is calling us to be a part of? Now, the good news is that God does not command us to do anything without his empowering grace. With every command that God gives, he also gives us his provision, his empowering nature to make it happen. And God gives us specifically what we need, namely the Holy Spirit. So I want to go to a scripture in the Bible that talks about the original church and the role of the Holy Spirit in it. Acts verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus had just been resurrected from the dead. His disciples gathered together on a hillside, and they wanted to know, now that you have resurrected, what is your next move? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus uses a legal term here for witness. Uh, a witness was someone who testifies in court. You testified about what you had seen. And a witness's job is not really to do anything but to tell people about what had already been done. And so I want you thinking about the church through this lens. The church is a collection of people. We are united around the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and you and I are meant to be moved and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God for mission. If you take any one of these aspects out, what we get is something that does not deserve to be called the church. So today we are starting a new series on the Holy Spirit, and here's where we're going to go today. The Holy Spirit does not make the Christian life better. The Holy Spirit makes the Christian life possible. It's not like I got a great community, we have an amazing spot to do worship, we got funny uh, preachers, and we got a good, good singers, and we got a little bit of Holy Spirit. That's great. The Holy Spirit doesn't make Christianity better. It makes it possible, meaning without the Holy Spirit, you don't have it. You don't have anything that should ever be even called Christianity in the first place. It is that central and that vital. Check this out. Think about it like this. Jesus was just resurrected from the dead. Everybody is hyped like, yo, what is the move? Jesus says, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Because until you have him, you have nothing. 
You have an organization of people that are going to be gathered around a lot of things that are insufficient to fuel the movement. And so I really want us thinking about uh, the Holy Spirit today as we begin this series. So who is the Holy Spirit? Now, we have a very diverse church, not just in ethnicity, uh, but also in church experience. We have a lot of people who didn't grow up in church. We have Catholics, we got Pentecostals, and we got Presbyterians. And if you were to ask a lot of people about who is the Holy Spirit, you would very likely get very different answers. You know, when I went to college and I first became a Christian, uh, I remember my first group of Jesus followers that were rocking me on campus, we were all Pentecost- they were all Pentecostal, and um, in that Pentecostal church, they believed in that Holy Ghost, I can tell you that. <laughs> so much so that on the program, there was an asterisk at the bottom that all of this is subject to the order and the designation of the Holy Spirit. We had the announcements here, but the Holy Ghost said no, so we're going to do something different. Very quick side note. Have you ever noticed that the Holy Spirit always makes a service longer and never shorter? I need the Holy Spirit to redact some of these services sometimes. Over the years, I've learned so much from different uh, camps of people within Christianity, and I think there is a wealth of learning that we can all learn from different faith traditions inside of Christianity, brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus and who might express it a little differently. Uh, But today, even though Renaissance is a very diverse church, I want to center us around a couple of scriptures about who the Holy Spirit is, and I think it would benefit and bless all of us. So there's a scripture that I want to look at today from John 14. It's one of the most huge scriptures whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, Uh, and here's where we're going to go today. It's going to anchor us. So John 14, verses 15 through 18. It's Jesus speaking, and he says these words to his followers. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Jesus promises his disciples the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus describes, is a person. Like a lot of times I think when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about the Holy Spirit as like this emotional experience, right? So that if we If the music is right and the bass is hitting us in our chest, the Holy Spirit was high today. He was high. He was was crushing it. The problem is I would feel the same thing at an Anthony Hamilton concert. (laughs) If he starts singing in a falsetto, I get emotional. So the Holy Spirit does meet us in our emotions. I remember when when I did become a Christian, I remember reading through a passage of scripture. I was in the library on Morgan State's campus, and I was so overcome with emotion that I cried for two hours straight. I wept for two hours straight. I cried until there were no more tears coming out my eyes, until my tear ducts were dry. So the Holy Spirit oftentimes does meet us in our emotions. However, the Holy Spirit should not be ever limited to an emotional experience. The Holy Spirit might be ministering to you and you might not feel anything at all. And it doesn't make it any less genuine. Second thing about the Holy Spirit is 
that I want to clarify, that I think Jesus is getting at in this text is, the Holy Spirit is not limited to a location. What does he say? What does Jesus say in these verses? He says, he remains with you and will be in you. So the promise of the Holy Spirit is not that the Holy Spirit is more felt in some places or another. You know, one of the things that we were talking about this past couple of weeks when we were getting ready for the, when the teaching team was getting ready for this series is one of my pet peeves is when people, like, they go to Greece or Athens or they go to some spot, a holy spot in Israel, and they come back saying, oh, man, I felt the Holy Spirit like never before. And make no mistake about it, hopefully one day you'll look up on IG and you will see me in Athens walking the ground. You'll see me in Israel seeing all the holy sites. I think there's something really powerful and profound to see where Jesus walked. However, if the Holy Spirit of God is real, and if what Jesus is saying is true, then the Holy Spirit is as present on Jerome Avenue in the Bronx as he is in Athens. And we don't need, you don't need, we don't need to, to hop on a plane to go anywhere to experience the Holy Spirit. He is here. He's on 121st Street. He is wherever the believers are. The gift of the Holy Spirit given to those who have placed their faith in Jesus means that he remains with us. He is the person that remains with you. Now, this is a really important thing because Jesus was telling them that he was leaving and he's letting them know, but the Holy Spirit will remain with you permanently and not just around you, but he will reside inside of you. So the Holy Spirit is a person, and I think that's really important for us to get it as we talk about the Holy Spirit to know that this is not some impersonal force that exists or hovers that does some weird stuff, but rather the Holy Spirit is a person that can be grieved. The Holy Spirit is, somewhat, is, a, is, is God that can be invited and live inside of us. You know, one of the things in Scripture that I think is kind of also confusing is when we hear about the Holy Spirit, we hear about the Holy Spirit in terms of you can be full of the Holy Spirit. And when I think about being full of the Holy Spirit, I think about it in some ways like a gas tank. Like I was on E, and then I went to the gas station, and I got full. They filled up the gas tank. And I think when we approach the topic of the Holy Spirit, we think about it in terms of the gas tank. Like, well, how do I get more in my tank? Where do I have to go? What formula do I have to do in order to increase the amount of the Holy Spirit that's living on the inside of me? But if God is the Holy Spirit and God is living on the inside of you, then it doesn't work in terms of having a, a formula. It doesn't work in terms of just having something that's mathematical or equation to go about it. So what would it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit, uh, who is a person, who is God that lives inside of us? You know, one of the best ways I know how to explain it is uh, years ago, I was a part of a church planter's cohort. So I'm a church planter. I helped to start Renaissance, and I helped to start other churches in other cities all over the world. And uh, there was a, um, this cohort of leaders in New York City that four or five of us got invited into. And for a year straight, we got poured into by some of the biggest names in church planting, people who are heroes of mine. If I were to say their names, you wouldn't even care who they are because you don't know who they are. But in the church planting world, they were a really big deal. And one of the people that was with us was one of my favorite preachers. Uh, I had seen him on stage a bunch of times. I had listened to at least 100 of his messages. And he was someone that I really, really looked up to. And even though in his sermons he was vulnerable and approachable, there was a certain limit to what I can get from him 
because there's a limit whenever there's a stage separating you and a person. It's like a one-way form of communication. But in the sessions, I, get to, I got to have access to him. Now, the cohort, we would meet before the session as a group together, and we would be shooting the breeze and laughing and joking. But once he came into the room, our attention changed, and our attention turned towards him in such a way that he was now the center of the conversation. Clearly, Jesus is the centerpiece of the conversation, but he was our focus point. And listen to this. We were like hanging on to his words, and some of the things that he said in those sessions actually changed the trajectory of my life. Now, I have been around him. I had seen him on stage, but I became more full of who he was as a leader, of, a mentor of mine, when I got to have one-on-one -on -one access with him and talk to him and to be near him, to have proximity to him. And not just that I was around him, but he had the authority in my life to speak into my life in such a way that it would change things. I think to be full of the Holy Spirit means you give him access to your life. You give him your undivided attention. You give him the authority in your life to redirect you in a different direction than you would ordinarily go on your own. To be full of the Spirit is not merely an emotional experience where you feel something good one day, but rather you attune your entire life. You orient your life around this person, not just for an hour of the week, but now a permanent thing. Your decisions in life are not made based on what you felt like doing. But we, we are being attuning, attuned to the Holy Spirit. We'll get to some of that stuff later in the series. But I think to be full of the Spirit means to connect on another level by giving them your full attention and letting their words move and direct you and change you. So Scripture says the Holy Spirit is a person, and he is also not just a per any regular person. He is God. So it makes a great deal of difference in our life if we believe collectively that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force or rather a distant God, but by a person in whom his essence is love, because God is love. So what is the Holy Spirit like? What is the Spirit like? There's a number of ways in Scripture that it describes him. John 14 and 16 says it like this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate comforter, helper, or counselor to be with you forever. Now, if you were to look at four or five different Bible translations, they'll all have a different word there. Now, the Bible that we read on, a, on Sundays and the Bible that you probably have on your app or your phone or your Bible at home, it is incredibly trustworthy and something that you can build your life around. However, there are limitations whenever you translate anything from one language to another. And one of the hints about the limitation that we see is this word, the way that interpreters have tried to interpret the word for paraclete. And they've used different words. And check this out. Whenever you see the Bible translators use different words to translate one thing, it's because they're letting us know that there is no one single English equivalent that could capture the profundity and the bigness of what this is trying to communicate. So comforter, um, uh, some of these words, they're good, they're helpful, but none of them in and of themselves are sufficient to just explain what the Holy Spirit is like. One of these words is advocate, and advocate is a little bit too hard, it's a little too legal, and nobody here likes lawyers, um, and God is more personal than I am a lawyer, so I'm allowed to make lawyer jokes, and I don't like lawyers, no, I'm kidding. 
it's too legal, but to, to have the Holy Spirit as merely your advocate, it's, it's very professional. It's helpful. He is our advocate. He does advocate for us, but it doesn't fully encapture, capture what the Holy Spirit is. Other words use comforter, and that's a little bit too soft. Helper is good too, but it's a little bit too weak. He doesn't just help you. He is the Holy Spirit. He is God. You don't have a spiritual life without him. He's not an addition that you add to your mix. He is the mix. And uh, another word that they use is counselor. And a counselor is good, but it's also a little too detached. We all have counselors and, and therapists and guidance counselors. And you go your way, they go another way. When a day is done, their life stops and your life begins. And they don't, it doesn't really merge in such a way. So all of these words are true and helpful to a certain extent, but don't capture the fullness of what it means. Uh, so I thought about a, of a handful of examples from Scripture that I thought would be helpful in us understanding what the Holy Spirit's ministry is like to us. In Scripture, there's so many different resources that it gives us to explain and tr- to try to describe what the Holy Spirit is like. So he is a person. He is God. And one way, the first way that uh, the Holy Spirit's ministry is described to us is that his ministry to us is kind of like the wind blowing. In John 3 and 8, it says this, The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves like the wind. We don't see where the wind comes from or where it's going. You cannot pinpoint and predict the exact trajectory of the wind. And Jesus says, this is what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is like. It's not a formula. It's not something that you can figure out and pan out to people. It's not for you to, uh, to figure out. It's for you to stick close to the Holy Spirit and to receive it. The Holy Spirit's ministry is it's unpredictable because God is unpredictable. You know, as a pastor, I can think of very few things that frustrate people more than God's unpredictability. You thought God would do one thing, and he did not do it. You thought God definitely wouldn't allow one thing, and he did. And I think it's comforting for us to know that God and his ways are higher than us and our ways. Isaiah 55 reminds us that as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. God is unpredictable in our lives which means this. It means that you and I should not spend as much time trying to figure out what God is doing. One of my friends, John O., he said that in, in, trying, in trying to understand God, we make better historians than we do detectives. Detectives try to search for clues and figure out what's going on, but historians just look back at the past to see what has already been done. Since God is unpredictable, since the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is unpredictable, you will make a better historian than you will a detective trying to search out for clues about what God is up to. So the Holy Spirit is unpredictable. He functions and his ministry is like the wind. Another experience, example from scripture is that the Holy Spirit feels like fire. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples in Pentecost, he appeared, the Holy Spirit appeared as tongues of fire resting on each of them. Now, fire has the power to transform, to purify, and to bring in warmth and light. In the same way, the Holy Spirit has the power to transform you, to purify your heart, and to bring light into your lives. This is why this is so important. 
Because unless you are focused on God's ability, you will always be focused on your inability. You'll always be thinking, you'll focus on one thing or the other. You, but one of these will drown and crowd the other one out. You will either focus on you and your inability, or you will focus on God and his power. Scripture reminds us, I was just praying with a woman after the uh, 10 a.m. service. One of the most beautiful reminders in Scripture is Philippians 1 and 6, and it says this, He who began a good work in you, he will complete it. The, the confidence I have as a Christian is not in Jordan's ability to finish what God has started. It's that God is powerful. He can, he can transform things. He can change everything around because he is powerful. And what I need to do is align myself with his power instead of dwelling on my own inability. So the Holy Spirit is like, like fire. Fire also burns away impurities. We don't like that. One of the processes in Scripture that you see over and over again is the process of purifying silver or gold or precious metal. And the, the Bible talks about this fire, the, the fire that comes on us sometimes through situations, but fire burns away impurities. And I think what it means, if we are intellectually honest with what it means to have the Holy Spirit in our lives, means that if we give him access to our life, if we attune him to our life, he will not just empower us, but he will also burn away some things in our life that we probably have gotten comfortable with. So the Holy Spirit functions like a fire as well. Another one, one of my favorites is in John 7, 38 through 39, is that the Holy Spirit is like living water. It says, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep, flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. So Jesus says that when people place their faith in him, the one who believes in me, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the Spirit, meaning that the Spirit's ministry in your life is like a river that is flowing. A, a pastor mentor of mine told us one story about um, when he bought a house and um, his real estate agent conveniently left some details out about the house. He moved into the house and they were noticing that like, even when it was dry, their basement was moldy and wet and damp. And they tried all these different things, dehumidifiers and fans, and they tried to figure it out. And one day he was talking to his neighbor and his neighbor said, oh, you didn't know, there's a water table, there's a river that runs underneath your property. So even though they like built a foundation on top, even though they poured tons and tons of cement on top and built a house, there is a living water running underneath your property. So even when it's dry outside, it's wet inside. One of the things that he learned through that experience was this. Even if you pour thousands and thousands of pounds of concrete on top of living water, it will still run. It will still win. Water wins every single time. If you look at the Grand Canyon, none of us would ever think that water, a river, would be able to beat a mountain, but give it some time, and water will win every single time. When Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is like streams of living water inside of us, he's saying a couple of things. First and foremost, it's an encouragement to let you know, even if you have come in here today discouraged that you have poured tons of cement and sin in your life, the Holy Spirit is still even more powerful than that. You cannot extinguish the power of God in your life. And also, stop pouring stuff on top of it. Right? If we want to experience a fullness 
of what God has for us, then we need to excavate some things in our life. You know, we're teaching, a, we're, going, we're doing emotionally healthy spirituality for some of our members uh, this spring, and fair warning for everybody, my goal is to excavate some things in our lives. My goal is that we're going to go down and we're going to peel back some stuff, and by doing that, we are going to give God access to parts of our life that we have previously had covered up. And eventually, we hope to bring this to the whole church to be able to go back and to look back at our lives and to, un, and to excavate some things in, in our lives. So Romans 8 and 11, one of my favorite scriptures, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives inside of you. None of us could ever cover up the power of God that lives inside of us, and that's encouragement for us. Another example of um, the Holy Spirit's ministry is a dove. Matthew 3, 16, it says, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And this is a really beautiful image because doves are gentle creatures known for their peace and their purity. In the same way, the Holy Spirit's ministry to you is gentle. The Holy Spirit is not going to Debo you. Y'all know who Debo is? If you're waiting for God to throw you in a headlock and make you do something, he's not going to do that because he's gentle. If you're wondering why things haven't changed in your life, don't blame God. It's because we're not willing to do what he's called us to do. One of the things that I've learned as a pastor over the last decade is this. People often want more instruction, but oftentimes we're not doing the things that we already know to do. People say, oh, I want some deep teaching. I'm like, are you in a group? Nah. Okay, well, do the first thing. Do the thing that's right in front of you. We want more information because we want to retain control of our lives. We want to compel mountains of information. What God is calling you to do is that very thing right in front of you. And he's not going to force you to do something. He's not going to force you to do it. God is inviting us to obedience. Jesus says in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He's not kicking the door, waving the 4-4. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is not like Biggie. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is gentle. And check this out. Listen to this. Some of us, we have been ignoring the Holy Spirit for so long in our lives. We have put him on do not disturb. We have made so many decisions overriding the warnings of the Holy Spirit or the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry is gentle. He's available to you, but he's not going to force you to do anything. And my hope today, if you hear nothing else, for those of you who are Christians and you're following Jesus, I would ask myself this question. Jesus, are there any ways that I'm ignoring your still small voice? What are the ways? Search me, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Show me the decision that needs to be made and I'm going to make it. So Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit is like a dove. And the last one that we see in John is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He is referred to the spirit of truth. One of the things I love about scripture is it gives us these really beautiful images and different contrasts. So the enemy, the, the Satan, the accuser, the devil is referred to as the father of lies. Jesus said that when he lies, he speaks his native language. That's such a powerful and profound image. 
you know, I talk to a lot of people in the church, and there's a lot of people who speak multiple languages. And I was speaking to a, a, a parishioner a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about some scriptures. And I asked her, I said, hey, what's your heart language? What's your heart language? And she said Spanish. I said, well, let's read these scriptures in Spanish since this is your heart language. Your heart language is the thing that's going to resonate with you the most. It's what's going to come out of you so naturally because it's native to you. Jesus says the most native thing to the enemy is lies. When he speaks, he is fluent in lies. The things he tries to whisper in your ears, man, he, is, he speaks that language so much better than you do, you have no idea. But the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. His native tongue is truth. He leads us and guides us into truth. He wants you to live and to stand and to walk in truth. And one of the most dangerous things to us is when we believe lies. We believe lies about God. We believe lies about ourselves. We, be, we believe lies about other people. And the enemy is laughing his way to the bank. One of the lies we believe about people is that people are discardable. People are discardable. If they don't agree with me, you, I can discard them. That is a lie from the father of lies. The spirit of truth will tell you, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not have perished but have everlasting life. So the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And Jesus says, without the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit who is uh, unpredictable like the wind and profound and powerful like a fire and inside of us flowing deeply uh, like a river and gentle like a dove and the spirit of truth lead, uh, leading us into truth, you and I would be like orphans. In John 15 and 18, Jesus gives the disciples and he gives to us a promise. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. A couple of things about orphans. Orphans in those times were absolutely incapable of providing for themselves. So I want us to think about ancient Rome, ancient Israel. It is a different economy. Their economy was based on inheritance. The only way you would ever have anything is if you inherited it. If you didn't inherit anything, you would never have anything. You would be subjected to a life of servitude forever. There are no such thing as rags to riches in ancient Israel because their entire economy was based on inheritance. The only way you got land was if somebody gave it to you. If somebody didn't give it to you, you had no land. If you had no land, you had to be a servant for the rest of your days. So if you were an orphan, you were perpetually poor because you were cut off from inheritance. Jesus uses this word very intentionally to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as someone who is incapable of providing for themselves. Now, this shows us the beauty of the gospel as well. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God is unobligated to us, but he gives us good things because he loves us. Not because you have earned anything, because check this out, orphans could never earn anything. An orphan would have been completely unable to earn anything because he, he or she would have been cut off from inheritance. They would have had to rely on the kindness of someone who was not obligated to them to adopt them. That was their only hope, that someone who did not owe them anything would give them something. And that is the gospel. While you were dead in your sins, God made us alive in Christ. For all of those, as it says in John 1, who believe in him, he gave us the right, the power, the privilege to become children of God. And 1 John says, oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. 
Jesus gives us his promise that he will not leave us as orphans, incapable of providing ourselves for ourselves or incapable of guiding ourselves for our future. He is coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. As in Jesus' language, Jesus was talking to his disciples a couple chapters later than this, and he tells them in John 16 and 7, something that is so profound, we could spend a year talking about this one subject. John 16 and 17, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. I often think, if you were to let me... If, if I could trade anything I have now, if I could experience like listening to Jesus preach, I would give almost anything for that. Like how cool would it be to see Jesus in action? Even better, how good would it be to have Jesus with you that you could like text him and he wouldn't ghost you? <laughs> Jesus says this, it's the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than me beside you. It's for your benefit that I go away. Jesus, what are you talking about? We've given everything to follow you, and now you're going to go away? You're going to be crucified? How is this better? Because the Holy Spirit resides with you. He is with you. He is God with you. Now, how do we access this power? How do we access the Holy Spirit? How are we enabled and fueled by him? First, it starts with believing in the gospel. Ephesians 1 and 13 says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. So scripture is pretty clear that in order for us to become, to receive the Holy Spirit, we need to believe in the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation. And that happens when we believe. We don't have to do anything to earn it. There's no special services that need to happen. When you believe... God gives us the Holy Spirit, and the beauty of belief and what it means to truly believe, what it means for God to open up our ears to the gospel. Man, one of my hopes for you, honestly, my my real sincere hope is that for you, if you don't know where you stand, you'll be praying, say, God, make my heart alive to the beauty of the gospel. Make my ears capable of receiving the message that you're trying to tell me. Give me the eyes to see. Give me a new heart. But it doesn't stop there. A man named Paul says something amazing in Ephesians 3 and 20. He says this, Now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Really quickly, I want to talk to some of you people in here who are newer to church. Uh, You're here today because someone invited you and you had to come to church before brunch. They wouldn't tell you where the restaurant was unless you came here. You don't know if you're strong enough to change on your own. You're probably sitting in a chair thinking about how and what you would need to do to kind of rearrange your life in such a way that the Holy Spirit could come in your life and be accessible to you so that you can get more of God, so you can get your life right. Let me say, save you all a few months of misery and frustration that God is able to do more inside of you than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. Where you started right now, where you are right now, you know, when I think back in the last 20 years of my life, not because I'm on a stage right now preaching 
Uh, I know so many people who are way more mature than I am spiritually and have a much deeper relationship with Jesus than I do. And I get to stand on the stage and talk about Jesus, but this does not make anybody mature. I hope you all know that. That being said, when I look back over my life and I see where God has brought me from, the times when I was sitting in my dorm room, not knowing, I was disconnected from everybody. I had no idea where to turn next. All I had was the Bible and the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Spirit, over these last 20 years, has grown me in ways that I didn't think was possible. Here's the truth of the scripture for you, particularly if you, even if you've been rocking with Jesus for a while and you are in a season where you find yourself going around the same mountain over and over and over again, and you have no idea how to move forward. Here's the good news of Christianity. It's not up to you. The Holy Spirit is able to do immeasurably more, not just a little bit more, immeasurably more than you could ask, think, or imagine. You know, this past week, my wife and I, we went to Jamaica with our family, and that's not a humble brag. A little bit, a little bit, maybe a little bit. <laughs> but man, we were so grateful. Uh, we went to the South Coast. Anybody, all my, all my people them who know Jamaica, um, we were in the South Coast, and we went to this one spot called YS Falls. And I was talking to my wife when we were there, and I was like, yo, these like giant trees, these like massive trees with the, like the, the roots were like the size of this stage and they were so incredible. And I thought about it that that tree started out as a seed. And probably for the first several years of its existence, it was something that you would have just walked past and stepped over. It was nothing that was worth paying attention to, but there's a lot of power in the seed and all that seed needed is continuous access to the light and it's going to grow. Jesus, when he talked about your growth, he never talked about our growth in mechanical terms, but in organic terms, that your faith is like a small seed. It starts with a seed, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will grow, and all it needs is access to the light and time, and to be patient with yourself, and to trust. Stay the course. Don't wait for some explosive moment to change your life overnight. Things that you marvel at and love, anything that's good takes time to develop. And God lets us know that the Holy Spirit's work in our life, it's much more like a tree, a giant tree, than it is a Subaru, a Subaru car door that I built overnight in a factory somewhere. So how do we access this power in our lives? Um, I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. We're going to talk about this next week. Uh, <laughs> living a life. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to talking about attuning our lives to the Holy Spirit right? And attuning our lives to the Holy Spirit in the age of distraction. But I will say two things very quickly. Um, for us to, today, I don't have a formula for you because the Holy Spirit is a person. I will say two things. Number one, this week I want you to commit yourself to not grieve the Holy Spirit. If you know, if you are a Christian, you're following Jesus, I don't have to tell you the list of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And I want you to stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Number two, in order to have access to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, we need to rearrange our life to make room for him. And my hope and goal for you this week is that you would make a little bit more room for the Holy Spirit than you did last week. To not beat yourself up for not being perfect, but to raise your expectations of what God wants to do in your life, what God wants to do in this church through the power of his Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for my brothers and my sisters and just the beauty of your scripture that has shown us a glimpse of what the Holy Spirit 
in his ministry is. And Lord, I pray that we would this week give the Holy Spirit more room in our lives to be God, to burn away impurities, to lead us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.